Have you ever had an experience you can't quite explain? Something that seemed to transcend the logical realities of time and space and matter. Something that you were aware of that was beyond your five senses. This last uh, month or so, I uh, had the privilege and gave myself the treat of rereading Madeline Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time. And the movie's coming out in a few weeks, and I loved this book when I was um, probably fifth or sixth grade, and so it's such a, it was such a delight to return to these characters, um, as to Meg and Calvin and Charles Wallace, as they go in search of their father, and they go back, they go through the universe and go to other worlds looking for their father who has been lost. And the way they do it is through what they call a tesser. And a tesser, they explain, is like this. It's like here's the straight line of, of matter and of time and space. And a tesser, is, this is where it comes, the wrinkle comes from, is just a wrinkle. And so you can get from this place to this place when there's a wrinkle. And you find those wrinkles and you can skip into a whole different universe and a whole different world. And as they do this and they, they meet new creatures and they see things that are beyond what they can imagine, they discover that it is still love that is the strongest force in the universe. And it is still love that conquers all. Madeline Langle's book introduced a generation of children and a generation of those of us who are adults who love to read children's literature to what physicists and scientists have been discovering for the last century, that there are realities beyond what we can see, that when we look into a microscope, we can see something that we can't see with our naked eye. And when we look into a telescope and we can see stars and, and things in the universe that we can't just see when we look up. And now astronomers tell us that 96% of our universe is made up of black holes. 96% of things that we can't see or measure or fully understand. Our world is so much more than our daily reality, than what we can use our five senses to touch and feel and taste. In our text that Chris just read today, we see Jesus taking one of these wrinkles, <laughs> tessering in some way to a different reality in the presence of the disciples. Would you pray with me? Oh God, would you open our hearts and minds to see beyond what we can see, to understand you beyond what we have experienced, to open ourselves to new realities that you are inviting us to, and to recognize that that is the love that is surrounding us, the love that is the law of the universe. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.
So our text last week for the first week of Lent was about Jesus going into the desert. And this is kind of the classic Lenten text. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days. We in Lent are also fasting for 40 days. And, um, and this is a text that we kind of can get. You know, it's about depriving ourselves and gutting it out and, and you know, facing our weakness and, and in that place, um, hearing the voice of God. But there's something in that Lenten desert text for us to do. You know, we can kind of relate to that self-denial. And so it's interesting that this week, uh, one of the readings um, that is the, um, the possibility for today in the lectionary is the story of the Transfiguration. And we just had Transfiguration Sunday two weeks ago when the deacons um, had their Sunday. So it's interesting that here it is again two weeks later inviting us to look at this experience that, that Jesus and the disciples had. And fortunately for me, I was not preaching that morning, so I didn't have to pull out a second sermon on the Transfiguration in a month. Um, but the Transfiguration is, is some, an interesting pairing to the desert. I really... I have been struck by that this week because the desert is something we can grasp being out in the wilderness. That's something we can kind of do and put ourselves into. What happens in the transfiguration is a moment of pure, out-of-this-world mystery and grace that just happens to the disciples. It's something that is outside of our, our trying and our getting it through. And it's just this moment where the heavens open and a different reality is present. But this openness to what we don't understand, I think, this openness to mystery is just, a much, is just as much a part of the spiritual journey as is our being willing to walk in the wilderness. And so here we have wilderness and mystery in our journey of Lent. In the verses before uh, the transfiguration, Jesus seems to be struggling to communicate to the disciples who he is. They keep having these conversations. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And he says, don't tell anybody. And then they have this other conversation where Jesus describes that he will have to to die and to suffer. And Peter says, no, you don't have to do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So there's this, this struggle, I think, that Jesus is having to say, the glory and the struggle go together, the glory and the suffering. And it's not exactly what you think. It's not this triumphalist, um, overcoming victory. Instead, there's these two, this paradox at the heart of who Jesus is, this glory and this suffering. And you also are on that journey. And I think part, as he's trying to describe this glory to them and trying to um, help them understand, he invites these three disciples up to the top of the mountain to have this experience with him. And as they are up there, he is completely transformed. And his clothes become white, and the word that we use for transfiguration in Greek, the word is metamorphosis, just as we would describe what happens to a butterfly. So there's a sense of this whole different form of Jesus changes and this revealing of a whole different side of him that happens. 
And it's self-revealing to see what the disciples' reaction to the transfiguration is. They, they have a reaction of fear, which would be an understandable reaction. And what I love is it says that because of his fear, Peter decides that this would be a good time to have a conference up on the mountain, to build three dwelling places for Jesus and Moses and Elijah who have appeared there. And so he wants to kind of like set up a display so that everyone can come and see Jesus in his glory, that everyone can see this mystery of time and space and matter when things have kind of collapsed into each other. He wants to, to build a, a religious center of sorts to, pr to prove this out. And it made me wonder is how often when we're confronted with mystery, when we're confronted with things that we don't understand, do we just want to get busy? <laughs> do we put it off by let, let's make something of this instead of being able to just sit and take in the mystery? Because really, when you have an experience of mystery, it's slippery and it doesn't last and you can't usually get your hands around it or quantify it or even sometimes put any words to it. You just know that it happened, and then it's gone. In 2009, the Pew Forum conducted a survey of religion in America. They had done a similar survey in 1962, and when they asked the question, how many people have ever had a religious or mystical experience? In 1962, the answer was 22%. So think about that. In 1962, churches were full and Sunday schools were full and mainline religion was, you know, what everyone was doing. It was right on the, right on the cusp of, of what we know is all, all the turmoil and the change in the 1960s. But only 22% reported ever having a religious or mystical experience. They asked that same question in 2009. 48% of Americans said that they had had a religious or mystical experience. That's a huge rise. And it's interesting that, that as our religious institutions are struggling, as Diana Butler Bass says, the mystics are on the rise. And I think that it has, there's many reasons for why that is. And yet, it's a really interesting thing to think that one in two of us, one in two people that you're walking around in the street would say that they've had an experience of mystery, a religious experience of some sort. As a pastor, this really makes me wonder what this means for faith and how we talk about it. If you were to take a really, some people take a very crude cut of society and, and experiences into three categories. One being pre-modern. So before science, before uh, the written text and the printing press, um, well not the written text, but just the printing press, before all of that, um, the pre-modern mindset would be focused on just what you can experience on a day-to-day -day level. 
And this is what we would still find in places, uh, in tribal areas where they haven't, modernity hasn't hit. There's a sense of superstition. There's a sense of, a lot of sense of mystery, right? If we can't explain what the weather patterns are, if we can't explain how things work, then there's a, there's a real big sense of mystery in the pre-modern understanding. But then we have modernity, which hits us with the printing press and microscopes and the particle accelerator down the street and this, this capacity to be able to study and understand, to communicate written, written information and share that broadly. And all of the sudden, reality becomes about what we can prove and what we can see. It becomes about the scientific process. And then that begins to change with the, in the last century. As people begin to realize that science can't still explain everything that we can see. And that there is more always to discover. And I think where it really took its hit, at least within Western society, was in World War II and in Nazi Germany. This society that was so scientifically rich. And yet they used that science in order to perpetrate genocide. So just science and just knowing what we can know with our, our minds is not enough. There has to be something else. And so that third, that third category is called postmodernism. Again, these are rough, rough terms, but postmodernism being there has to be different ways of knowing, affirming all that we can know through science and yet saying there is also mystery. And as we look at the church and we look at our own sense of faith, it's an interesting question to ask because so many of us have been taught to, to believe certain things and that faith is about what you mentally assent to and sign on a line to. And yet in this text, and in our own experience, and in the longings of our hearts, we also want to experience something. To have a, to have a God who is more than we can understand. To encounter mystery. In a wrinkle in time, there are beings that they encounter on this planet who cannot see. They don't see with eyes. They don't have eyes. They have all these sensors out all over them. And as Meg is trying to explain what sight is to one of them, she says, oh, how limiting sight must be. <laughs> and I think that is what, what's beyond <laughs> modernism, what's beyond the science is, 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 is sensing in a different way for all that we have discovered and all that we have quantified it's not the whole reality another quote from a wrinkle in time i don't understand it any more than you do but one thing i've learned is that you don't have to understand things for them to be you don't have to understand things for them to be and as Jesus and his disciples, and his disciples in particular, have this experience of the transfiguration, they're having an experience that they don't understand, that they can't grasp. They don't even have time to pick up a hammer and nail and start building a monument to it. And so these are deep questions for us in our faith. 
deep questions for us as a church. Can we make more room amidst our dogma and our church history and our institutions and our buildings for the experience of God? Can we return to a faith that, as, as the writer of Hebrews describes in the Bible, that it, the faith is the evidence of things not seen? Are we willing to let go of our grip on those things that we can control and quantify to enter into a space of questions and humility, connection, that space of mystery? And what would it mean to have a little bit more space for mysticism in our life together? In uh, the Monday night group this week, we shared a few of our, few of us shared our experiences of our mystical moments with each other. But that's really vulnerable. You know, you can't prove it. I don't know why at that moment things opened up for me in a different way, but, but they did. And the transfiguration is the space for us to do that. It gives us permission to have those conversations. When I look through the life of Jesus and I look at the experience of the mystics throughout history, this is how I would define mystery or a mystical experience. It's any experience that leads you any experience beyond yourself that leads you to deeper connection and deeper unity with God and others. So any experience beyond yourself that leads you to deeper connection, deeper unity with God and others. So if someone says that God told me to go out and kill so-and-so, that is not a mystical experience. <laughs> we have to have ways to, to process this. And yet if the foundational reality of the universe is love and the foundational reality of the universe is connection, that any time that we, we find ourselves moving deeper into connection, deeper into connection based on truth, then that is a, a moment where God is moving in us. And any time that we are outside of ourselves, so for example, a few years ago, I had been struggling to forgive someone in my life for years. <laughs> and I had done all of the work that I knew how to do. I had, had tried to talk it out. I had, had asked for forgiveness. I had tried to have conversations. And yet still, over the time, every time I saw this person, I just felt like I was in knots around it. And then one day, after all that work, I was in their presence, and I was free, and it was gone, and I was able to love them. That's what I would consider a mystical experience. It's not some, um, although you can have amazing, miraculous encounters with God, it can also be just that slight movement in your soul. That slight shift when you ask God to, to be with you in a day and, and a day where you felt heavy and everything felt wrong, all of a sudden shifts. It can be just that slight noticing of a bird outside your window and taking a moment to just be in the presence of the mystery of those wings and that 
bird. Mystical experiences can happen to us in so many different ways and in so many different places. Mystery does not mean that everything goes perfectly. <laughs> I mean, those, that forgiveness thing, that took me years to get to. It's a 20-year journey. It doesn't mean that we get what we want. It's not a, it's not a magic formula but it is a presence and a reality in our lives that we are invited to enter into over and over, and that also just comes to us as a gift of grace. Mystery is the other side of wandering in the wilderness. It's what we cannot control or produce, and yet is a window into this reality of God's love, this reality that God is with us. So my prayer for you today and in this Lenten season is that you will soften enough to enter into mystery and to allow it to enter into you. Amen. Part of our practice during Lent together on Sunday mornings is to spend some time in silence together. And so I invite you to just sit for the next few minutes and the choir will invite us back in with a song. <laughs>